Well, welcome to another edition of Baroque Banter. My name is Genevieve Lang, and it's always a pleasure to visit the Pinchgut um, rehearsal space prior to their productions being launched into the world uh, during the rehearsal season and have a chat with some of the key personnel. I'm joined today by Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera, and Dean Bryant, who is directing this winter production for Pinchgut of Il Giustino by Lagrenzi. Dean, this opera rolls apace. Mm. What are the challenges in that? And can you talk about some of the elements, the dramatic elements that are incorporated into the story of Il Giustino? Sure, it is quite uh, an adventure story. Uh, basically, it's a very heavily fictionalised uh, version of uh, Justin I, who was one of the Roman emperors, co-emperor. And essentially, it takes the most interesting fact about him, which was that he was a peasant, a farmer, who ascended to the top job. I think he, our version is all about virtue and honour and nobility and fortune and fate. I think he was actually a pretty savvy political operator, the real Justin. But um, we are in a much more kind of uh, mythical world, really. We're in the idea of um, what does it mean to be a good person? Is that rewarded? We're kind of, I described it a little bit like, it's a little bit like a Marvel film of its time in that there's so, it's so much about what we take to be human traits and behaviours but a hell of a lot of um, excitement and adventure thrown in there to keep it exciting, really. In the time, uh, these events were what people came to to be blown away by staging and imagination as well as music, and that's definitely something we're really leaning into in this production. But, and I hear what you say about the drama and the sort of theatricality of the storyline. Erin Helliard, it would also have been a case in Lagrenzi's time that audiences wanted to see the sort of political machinations and the, the courtly stories and have conversations around about those around the dinner table of an evening. Would you agree? That's right, yeah. No, Justino became the libretto of Justino was by a gentleman called Berrigan. And it then became probably the most popular Baroque libretto. And some scholars even think it's one of the best Baroque libretti because of the uh, the plot points that Dean's just outlined, it's basically a rags to riches story of a peasant who makes good, he's virtuous and great, and in doing so, uh, through a series of adventures, gets to the top job. And I think that appealed to late 17th century audiences, particularly those in Venice as well. Um, so you're absolutely right, these kind of concerns about um, virtue and honour were really... Um, really uh, of interest to people of the time. It's also interesting that just like our last 17th century show in this one, there's a jewel belt that a character steals. And it's quite interesting because in Chesty's Orentea, there's a similar plot point. And I think Venetian audiences of the time were a bit suspicious of capitalism. It had brought them so many riches. But actually this, so in Justino, um, this gem belt getting put from one character to another is actually a bit of a, uh, it brings with it lots of bad luck and luck is very much the ide fix of this show, Fortune herself. She's the only non-human character in the show. And uh, Dean's done a wonderful job of bringing that out. Um, this is one of our Tarantphibic scholars playing Fortuna, Chloe Langshear. And she sort of hovers around the action always. Luck dispenses good things, but bad things as well. And that also appealed to audiences at the time. 
that gem belt that you mentioned sounds like a bit of a hot potato. It was exactly, yes, that's exactly what it is in the show. And I think it was then. Um, but yeah, no, it's a wonderful piece. And uh, the we've done such a wonderful job in uh, Pinchgat of, of presenting Venetian opera. And I'm quite proud of the fact that we've done early Venetian, we've done mid Venetian. And here with Legrenzi's Justina, we have late Venetian, just before Handel pokes his head up on the parapet and we get uh, the next the next kind of operatic drama. So I'm glad you mentioned Handel because the story of Justin I, the emperor, is one that was set in opera by a number of different composers, including Handel. But Legrenzi's version, as far as I could tell, was neglected from about 50 years after it was premiered until the early 2000s. There was a German uh, restaging of it. That's right. How do you explain that? Well, interestingly enough, I, re I think the reason for Legrenzi's um, unfamiliarity and neglect is that all the scores that we have are incomplete. So the scores that survive in libraries were scores meant for the use of musicians. And so they don't have all the material that we need, all the string parts and so forth. So part of my job, which was immense fun, but challenging as well, was to recreate or reconstruct the uh, accompaniments for um, Legrenzi's Giustino. But yes, you're absolutely right. This is the first rendering of that amazing story. Yeah, amazing. And I'm so pleased that you guys are filming it too, because I think there will be demand, not just, you know, on the... It, it, uh, elsewhere in Sydney, but also across Australia and hopefully internationally too for um, Pinchgut's production this year. Um, Dean, the set always poses a challenge in City Recital Hall because it was never conceived of as an as a operatic theatre. How do you take the audience, with your designer, the designer's help, how do you take the audience from scenario to scenario? I mean, we go from courtly castle to uh, monster surrounded island and lots of other places in between. So what can we expect to see? I'm very lucky in that Jeremy Allen, our set designer, has done a number of pinch gut pieces in the space. So he brought with him a massive wealth of knowledge of how the space best works and actually how to get bang for your buck. Because um, I've always felt that I do a lot of big shows smaller um, musicals, plays. I do a lot of big things big as well, um, but they're not as, they're more resourced. And I actually think that there's a real joy for audiences in doing it before their eyes in, I mean, ultimately what you're trying to do is engage imagination. I think that's the most thrilling thing, allowing an audience to make connections. And that is character connections, musical connections, story connections, and of course, design idea connections. So um, I actually thought the demands of the piece, which, you know, when you read it, are a little bit overwhelming. You know, there is many monsters uh, and it does... I don't think I actually clocked how much it transitioned, but I've done so many shows with tons of transitions that actually I feel that they... It's so funny because they're just scene changes, but a lot of the rhythm of a piece and a lot of the sense of meaning of the whole night is in how you move from scene to scene. And I think that really tells audiences a lot about the entire team's intentions. Uh, so what Jeremy came up with was really a space where anything could happen. So it has a kind of timeless mythical appeal. It's very beautiful to look at just as a box. And then within that, we have one item, which is we're calling the Palace Rock, which is this kind of very large, I'm looking at it right now, about four to five meter tall item that is completely asymmetrical 
looks completely different whatever angle you put it on and suggests physical spaces to the audience as we use it. So um, it, it's a piece that you don't become tired of. You constantly, it's moving around, it's taking on different angles. Damien Cooper, our lighting designer, will find many ways to relight it so it feels always engaging. And I think novelty is exciting for an audience, but novelty from an item they've been seeing all night is particularly exciting because it keeps generating different impressions to them. Yeah, and actually, as you drew my attention, my eyes to it from this angle I hadn't seen before, and it suggests, I don't want to um, sort of anticipate anyone's mm. experience of it, but it takes me to a very distinct place and from the previous angle that I'd seen it at, there was no hint of that. So, yeah, it'd be amazing to see how it works. Erin, what's happening musically in these transitions? Well, it's as we mentioned at the beginning, it's such a fast-paced show. And I think that's what's really interesting about this late 17th century uh, style. So in Chesty, we sort of had a lot of recit with brief arias, but now we have this almost... Um, equilibrium between recit that pushes the action forward and the and the aria that allows the singer's art to shine and so it's a really it's extraordinary experience for um, all the vocalists as well because we have so many arias I think he sets the world record for it's the amount of arias like 70, isn't well it? in the original before we cut it because if we did it uncut it would take about four and a half yeah, hours no long. one's got the patience but yes exactly you know, <laughs> over a hundred very small arias um, whereas a handle show has about 28 so we have about 60 all very very short but what it feels to me is that the emotional experience for Lagrenzi is reduced just like a fine red wine sauce. It really is just the bare minimum and he has such a great economy of material in respect to other Baroque operas. Obviously, if you're used to a play, it still takes much longer to get the information across. But uh, compared to spoken word, it's very, very speedy indeed. In the orchestra, we have a small part of the reason I chose this work is where, um, for its economy. Um, so. Venetian orchestras at the time were only five-part strings, two violins, two violas, and a bass. And with this orchestra, we have a harp and a fiorbo and uh, organ as well. Um, but for extra panache, Legrenzi's got a trumpet in there for the lots of battle arias uh -huh. and so forth. Um, so there's only about eight or so in the orchestra. And at the time, they really did um, put all the money towards spectacle and singer's fees. And the orchestra was very small. And, of course, that changed with Handel's Day. The orchestra became much bigger. In fact, everything became bigger. Yeah. Singers' fees, yeah. costumes, lighting, and all these things. We're still slightly more in the. Um, uh, it's a it's a much smaller theatre in Venice than it was for later times. So yeah, it's a wonderful wonderful night in the theatre, and I, uh, Dean has done such a wonderful job um, with all of our wonderful creatives. I just have one more. Um question or, or topic that I want to explore with you, Erin, particularly uh, you have in the title role uh, Nicholas Tamanya joining Pinchgut Opera for the first time. What's it like working with a new voice, a new individual, a new human for the very first time? Well, Nicholas is fantastic. He has been on our radar for many years and in fact in some respects um, this production of Justino is a holdover from pre-COVID times. Um, we've had it on our radar for many years now, and it's such a pleasure to bring it to fruition. Um, Nicholas is amazing. He, of course, we were just talking about he did his Met debut just before the pandemic as well. He's an extremely fine artist and actor and brings such a such a diversity and depth to the, to the role, which really suits him. You know, it's a, an amazing piece. He gets 
a lion's share of those 60 arias as well. <laughs> um, the other person having their pinch cut debut is Madeleine Pirard, just yes, across the ditch. She's a New Zealand, New Zealand soprano. We've worked together personally. I worked with Maddie um, quite a few years ago in Hobart Baroque. Some of our listeners might remember that festival. Um, and we've been wanting to work with Maddie for a long time as well. And now that the pandemic is somewhat over, we're able to bring all these things off. So it's just such an exciting time. Yeah, fantastic. Look, I can't wait to see it. Il Justino, City Recital Hall, opening night, 25th of May. Good luck, everybody. Yeah.